take your Bible, if you would, turn with me to the book of Psalms. We are finishing up our series today, our short series in the book of Psalms, Psalm 145. Psalm 145. Now, the people in Bible times would have been much more familiar with how to venerate a king than we would be today. We, we are not people who really enjoy royalty. Uh, there are some people, some Americans, who don't mind the British royalty. I'm not one of them. I don't really care for those folks over there, but that's fine. That's their business. And, um, in fact, in our culture today, in America, we are very much against uh, royalty. But, biblically, we see the ideal of king laid out throughout. In fact, that is standard. And you see, David was the ideal king in the Old Testament Israel. He, he Think about all the things David did right. He worshipped the Lord. He led well. He won wars. He expanded territory. He was respected by many people. But we'll see in this scripture, there was a king that even David respected above himself. I think that's one of the things that we're missing today in our leaders today in our culture is that many think that they are the top authority. But even David here, as you seeing at the beginning of Psalm 145, a praise of David, a Tehillim of David, the word for psalm there, praise or song of David. He worships the Lord for God's attributes as the king. When we talk about worship, what are we really saying? What we're mentioning is we're mentioning the recounting. We are reminding ourselves of the attributes of God. When we worship God, if you look at your hymn book, the first part of our hymn book is all about praise, adoration, and worship. And many of those songs deal with God's attributes, deal with his, his person, deal with his character, deal with his, his nature and how he relates to people, his faithfulness, his grace, his mercy, etc. To praise God is to say good things about or to promote him. We are to be promoters of our Lord by constantly thinking about, talking about, reflecting on his character. And here, the title of this message, Worshiping the King, I, I was thinking about this idea of God being the King. That's how it starts. I will extol you or praise you, my God, O King. If you were in charge of things, how might things be different? If you were in charge, what would you change? If you were in charge of your school, what would you change? If you were in charge of your work, what would you change? If you were in charge of your family, what would you change? If you were in charge of your church, what would you change? How about the universe itself? Many times we receive things we do not want. And we don't receive things that we do want. But the attribute we'll focus on this morning is God's attribute as king. And in some ways, the message this morning is a culmination of the, what we've seen in this past series of worshiping the Lord. We've seen so far in the messages I've been able to preach that we just, how God describes the blessed life of worship from Psalm 1. How we should have a life of personal praise how we should worship through prayer, but also what we've really focused on several of these messages is the attributes of God that is the one we are worshiping. I think about Psalm 107, we talked about the God who redeems and how we worship God who saves us. In Psalm 110, we worship Messiah, the King, the true King, the chosen one, Christ, Messiah, Psalm 110. In Psalm 115, we talked about worship the invisible God versus the visible things of this world like the idols who are with hands but they can't handle, with eyes they can't see, with noses but they can't smell. That was in Psalm 115. And then last week, I opened up Psalm 139. 
And we talked about worshiping the personal God, the one who searches me and knows me, who knows my downsetting, my uprising, who knows everything about me, my thoughts from afar off. And, he, and at the end of that psalm, we're calling God to search me and know me, try me and know my ways and see if there's any wicked thought in me. And this week, as we culminate, we come to Psalm 145, worshiping the King. And I think this morning, just like every morning, but especially today, we need a reminder that we are not the supreme authority. That we're not in charge. We don't get to call all the shots. No matter your station, there is a greater king. And to live a life of worship, we must worship the king and we must live with submission and godly fear. Father, we come to you today in humble humble station, Lord, as we stand before you, we kneel before you, we bow before you, great king of the universe. We know that we are humbled by your power. We are humbled by your love for us, but also... Lord, by your depth and the things that you do that are beyond our understanding. We pray your comfort on many today. We pray that your truth would settle our hearts. And Father, as we pursue you, may we know that you are indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you for this passage of Scripture that unfolds to us this truth and how we are to respond to it. May we reflect on the great King, the great God, may we indeed worship you as the King. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you might remember from an earlier psalm, uh, Psalm 111, that we talked about acrostic psalms. I mentioned that earlier, the fact that every verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 119 is the most famous acrostic. It has groups of eight verses, and each one of those eight verses has a heading above it. In most Bibles today, that heading was is is laid out for you it it tells you what the letter that begins that section of eight verses is and and then many of these uh psalms in the bible are indeed acrostics psalm 145 is another one of these acrostics that isn't obvious to us as english speakers but to a hebrew person reading this it would have been the first thing they noticed the jewish people they notice it's it's an abc kind of a kind of a psalm. And often uh, acrostics are meant to encompass all the truth about something. They're meant to en- encompass the entirety almost of, of a topic. It's, it's, it's the A to Z is of a topic, so to speak. It is, um, or the foundational truths of a topic. And, and it also is probably used in memory or in learning. And what we find today is really this is a psalm about God being the king. Look with me in the first two verses. As we see, we begin here, the worship for the majestic King, the description of Christ, of, of our Lord here in Psalm 145, verses 1 and 2. He says, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. We see here from the beginning there is a commitment to constant praise. And he does not say, I will praise you when things are going well. He does not say, I will praise you when I win victories. He does not say, I will praise you whenever I feel like things are going my way. He says, I will bless you forever and ever and every day I will bless you. There are words of praise here. He says, I will extol you. The word extol means to to bring up, that is to aloft something, to exalt God. It's to do everything you can to lift something up and make it more visible. You are lifting it up. 
And here, of course, God is a spirit. We cannot lift up God himself, but we are, in a metaphorical sense, blessing his name. We are lifting up his name to exalt it so we all can see and praise. He says, I will bless your name. To bless is to say good things about. It's the opposite of cursing. To cursing is to say bad things about. To bless is to say good things about. And we are to bless the name of our Lord. Do, do you say good things about your God? Do you reflect on the character of God and say, I, I am thankful for the character of my God. He's a, a good God. I will bless you. I won't even just bless your name, your, your character. I will also bless you for your person. I will praise your name. There's our word hallelujah again. I will hallel you. I will praise you. I will say great things about you. These constant praises, words of praise about the great God who we love and serve. We've got to stay focused on the God we serve. In times of difficulty, in times of trouble, we focus on the one who deserves our praise. He says, my God, O King. This is a prayer to the majestic King. He is the majestic one. Kings rule. Kings make decisions. Kings wage wars. Kings unite people. Kings make judgments. Kings lead nations. And David, the psalmist, was a human king. And he knew that there was a king that was greater than him, the greatest, the king of all. He has a king. Oh God, my king. And then he says, notice these words, not only of praise, but these words of constancy. As you look at this, we're talking about constant praise. He says, I will bless you forever and ever until the end of ages, until time stops, until I have no more words to speak, until my breath is gone. Nothing that happens in my life will prevent me from singing praise to the name of the Lord. I believe every day when we step out of our beds, we ought to sing praises to God. We ought to say, thank you, Lord, for the privilege of living another day to worship you. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. And I will bless you, verse 2, every day. There are no exceptions here. We don't take Saturdays off. We praise God, whether it's Monday and you hate going to work on Monday morning, or whether it's Sunday and you love coming to church on Sunday morning, or whether those two are reversed. You praise God every day. It doesn't matter if it's your favorite day or the least favorite day. It doesn't matter if it's daylight savings time coming over, uh, coming in. You have to leap forward an hour, or what is it, spring forward an hour, and you're thinking, I don't, I don't want to get out of bed. It's an hour early. God says every day you praise Him. Whether it's on your birthday or whether on your deathbed, you praise the Lord every day. He says, I will praise your name, your character forever. And ever. There are words of praise and words of constancy here. So here we see that we should be constantly or consistently praising. Praise ought to ooze out of our pores. We ought to be people that constantly are reflecting on the goodness and greatness of God. You put these two together and you develop into a life of worship that will have a commitment to constant praise. And what's the opposite of praising? The opposite of praising is grumbling. The opposite of praise is murmuring. Now, there is a distinct difference in the Bible between complaining and murmuring. And it might not be as obvious to us today. But the psalmists often bring their complaints before God. In fact, if you read the psalms, you find many of these psalms that are 
called lament psalms where the psalmist will bring a complaint to the Lord and say, Lord, why are you standing afar off? Why are you far from me? Why are you not hearing the words of my groaning? Have you forgotten where I am? And those are complaints, but those are based in faith because he's calling upon God to act in accordance with his nature. There's a difference between that and grumbling or murmuring. Murmuring is based in rebellion. It's when you say, this should never have happened. We should have died in Egypt. Why are we out here wandering the wilderness? This is And God judges, murmuring. But He supports those who come to Him with their faith and ask God what to do next. That is a life of praise too. The opposite of play, praise here is an ingratitude for the gifts of God, a murmuring. But we must be like David here, committing ourselves to a constant and enduring pattern of of worship, And secondly, we see a commitment not only to this constant praise, but to generational praise. Would you keep reading in verses 3 and 4? He says, Great is the Lord. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is very praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend or praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. First, we see God's praise And God's greatness must be praised now. He is great and he is very much praised. He is worthy of great praising. He deserves to be praised with everything we have. We should give our praise to him. And it says his greatness is unsearchable. It's beyond our ability to understand it. In Job 38, God uses the same word to describe how he says, Hey, Job, have you searched out the depths of the sea? I want you to imagine that obviously those who were around before submarines and deep sea vessels had no idea what was going on in the depths of the sea. They could not even begin to descend. And even still, there are places that we do not know. We know more about the extremes of our galaxies far out than we do sometimes about the depths of our ocean. And God says that his riches are unsearchable. That is the picture of something that is just completely opaque to us. We cannot understand. It is beyond our reach. It's there, but it's beyond our reach because our limitations prevent us from fully grasping the greatness of God. But notice that because we are praising God's greatness, God's greatness must be lauded to our children. He says that in the next thing, verse 4. He says, one generation shall praise your works to another. And this is important. Because the word praise is not just the word that we typically use for lifting up God. It's actually this idea of commending or, or recommending or speaking highly of something. Like, we all do this. I, I, I've been on Facebook recently, and I've seen people say, I need a recommendation for a good repair person for HVAC system. And then everyone lists their favorite HVAC companies. I need a good recommendation to take my kids to a park. Where's a good park for the kids to go? And everyone underneath that post recommends good parks for their kids to go visit. And they'll probably take one of those recommendations. I mean, you've probably done this. I've done this with friends. I'll say, hey, I need to do something. Do you have a recommendation? Someone gives me a recommendation. They are commending something to me. Some of you do this with the Lord. Someone is struggling. You say, you know what you ought to do? You ought to pursue God in this. You ought to go to the Word of God and see what He has to say about this. Or you, or you suggest or you commend the greatness of God. You say, our Lord is great and our Lord is good. To, to do this, He says, you are to do this to your children. Now, who knows you better than your kids? Your kids see you 
and your highs and your lows. Your children see you when you are doing well and when you're not doing well. And in all these things, he says, one generation, the parents must commend God's works to another. We need to suggest, we need to recommend God's works to another people. We should declare his mighty acts and his mighty works. This is our obligation as believers to raise our families to understand and to appreciate and to praise the work of God. Now, you're not required to raise your children up to do your kind of work. If you're in construction, you're not required to raise up little construction workers. If you're in education, you're not required to raise up little teachers. If you're a medical doctor, you're not required to raise up doctors. You're not required to bring your children up to like your favorite foods. You may love green beans and your children may hate them. That's okay. You may, you may love a certain kind of meat and your children may hate that kind of meat. And sometimes that hurts us. We think, well, I'm a hamburger aficionado. I don't know if you knew. I'm a hamburger aficionado, and my kids don't appreciate hamburgers the way they should. That hurts me deeply, right? Now, they they actually have grown. It's grown on them. They've gotten better. But for a while there, Dottie would not eat hot dogs. And I thought to myself, what have I done wrong? What have I done? But God never commanded me to raise up children who would eat my favorite kinds of food. You're not even required to raise up your children to like your favorite college football team. You are not required to do any of these, but as God-fearing Christians, we are called to raise up our families to appreciate the greatness of God. We are called to commend God to our children because God is the God of all people. God is the King. With all that in mind, though, we are not responsible for how they respond to that truth. For some of us, our children will hear us praise God and exalt Him, and they will come along for the ride. Others will exalt God, we will recommend God, and they have a decision to make, and some children do not take that choice. You are called to commend the works to your children, but every child must respond. And that's why I really believe churches should be multi-generational. We have a multi-generational church here. We have some elderly folks here. We have some young, young children here. And I'm very thankful that we have such a dramatic span of ages because that's part of the responsibility of the church. One generation shall recommend, shall commend the works of God to another. Churches must be this way. And you can teach older folks, you can teach younger folks how great God is. Let's look at the third commitment here, which is a commitment to personal and public praise. Verse 5, he says, I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty, on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter or sing the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. Notice the I will commitments first. He says, I will meditate on God's glorious splendor. To meditate means to ponder. It means to think, to reflect on. He's meditating on how big and how great God is, and he's thinking about how powerful and how impressive he is, not only about God's, God's being, but also about God's working. He says, I'm thinking, I'm meditating about your being. I'm meditating about your works. And it's more than thinking about God's greatness. He moves in verses 6 to 7 to action. He says, men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts. The people out there, people... We'll speak, we'll talk. And I, David says, will meditate or declare, not only meditate, I will declare, I will speak, this move to personal praise. I will publicly praise. And then everyone who is remembering you, verse 7, shall speak or utter or sing 
They'll remember your goodness. There's this, this movement from the inner heart of meditation to the outward singing. And if you don't ever move from inward to outward, you're missing something. You cannot stay bottled up praising the Lord on the inside. There is a call that we have not only to have personal praise to the Lord, but public praise. We're gathered here for corporate worship. I hope you come ready to sing. I hope the whole week you have been preparing your heart in the word of God every day so that by the time you come to corporate worship, you're ready. ready, You're just ready to bust. You're ready to bust at the seams with praise for the almighty God for what he has done for you as David did. So we must do we must move from the personal to the public so that worship must also be not only personal but public. How often do you think about the greatness of God? We need to develop personal prayer time, personal worship, but without public worship, something is incomplete. And if we develop public worship without having our personal worship, then something is incomplete. Worshiping the majestic king involves action, involves this consistent or constant praise. It involves this generational praise. It involves this personal and public praise. This majestic king is not just a king with power and with grandeur far off. He's not just someone who's sitting on a throne far away from us who doesn't know your name. No, it's much more than that. He is a deeply compassionate king. And just as we worship the majestic king, we should also worship the compassionate king. We need to recognize how God describes himself here in verses 8 and 9 as we think about our compassionate and loving king. Notice the turn the psalm takes. A turn from our response to this great king to the to the describing the character of this great king. Because when we worship the Lord, we worship him as a compassionate king. And you think about kings, you don't normally think about compassion. You think about bloodthirsty, you think about powerful, you think about controlling, you think about domineering, yet God tells us, tells us he's not only our glorious king, he is our gracious father. Look with me in verse 8 as we see the relational king. He says, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. All of these descriptive words are relational words. It's relational. Do you see that in your Bible? He's gracious. He's full of love. Full of compassion. He is slow to anger. It takes God a long time to get angry. We are dealing with a God, a king who is at hand, not a God who is afar off. The word gracious means he's kind. That just means that he is the kind of God who is good to someone even if they do not deserve it. They do not have to earn their favor with God. God's grace is unmerited. He is a compassionate God. Being a compassionate God means that he loves those who do things. Or he loves others. He loves them. And he does things for their benefit. God's love for us is more than you could ever imagine. And the greatest example of God demonstrating his love for us is in Romans 5, 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, what did Christ do to demonstrate the greatest love that he has for us? He died for you. That is the greatest love. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. But we were his enemies. When he laid down his life for us. We see here the worshiping this relational king who is gracious. The one who is compassionate. The one who is patient. God does not lose his anger at us. 
God gives us time to respond to his chastening. This is part of God's patience, his slow to anger. A lot of people think of God as this malevolent being in the clouds with lightning bolts casting them down at children, at his children and angrily running around and, and spanking people and, 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 and just being a violent God who is always angry and always looking for us to mess up. That is a picture some people have of their God. They think, oh, I can't do anything. I'm, I'm restrained. If I do anything, God's going God's to be angry at me. God's going to do something to me. Oh, I had this. My car broke down. God must be mad at me. Oh, my thing isn't working. God must be mad at me. Oh, this is my life. Is, I'm sick. God must be mad at me. But this is so far from the picture the Bible gives us. Notice he says that God's wrath is against those who reject him. But even God's wrath has a very long fuse. That God's mercy and God is long-suffering. That God's anger takes a long time to come to fulfillment. God is patient. And some of us have mistakenly thought of God's patience as His approval. Romans 2 talks about this. He says, have you been so mistaken that you think that God's forbearance and long-suffering with you is because He approves of your sinful behavior? No, no, no. God is being patient with you to lead you to repentance. God is a patient God, and God is a merciful God. He is great in mercy, a promise-making. He is a promise-keeping God. The word mercy is translated in some versions as steadfast love. It's translated as loving kindness. This is God's covenant relationship with His children. The same word used often in marriage covenants. Here, God's covenanting, which involves obligations and responsibilities as well as blessings. Here, God covenants with His people. He is great in this mercy. In fact, this Description of God is one of I, one of the commentaries I read said this, this is one of the most common descriptions of God in the entire New Testament and it finds its first reference in Exodus chapter thirty four and verse six at Sinai when it said the Lord when when Moses says show me your glory the Lord passed before him and proclaimed this is God's description of himself Yahweh the Lord God merciful and gracious long suffering and abounding in goodness. And truth. This description of God is essential for us in understanding the character of God. This is how God describes Himself. It is such a core aspect of who God is that in the book of Jonah, ironically, Jonah, having preached to the Ninevites, is angry because he's sitting outside the city of Nineveh, watching them repent and knowing that God would indeed forgive them. And in this rebellion and in this anger he prays to the lord and says "Ah, lord was not this what i said when i was still in my country therefore i fled previously to tarshish for i know that you are a gracious and merciful god slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness one who relents from doing harm jonah says i know you're a forgiving god that's why i didn't want to preach because if they would have repented, then you would forgive them. And I don't want them to repent. I don't want you to forgive. I hate them that much. That's what Jonah was saying. You see, God's character, God's description of himself here, one who is so full of truth, one who is merciful, one who is compassionate, one who is gracious, one who is patient. We worship a relational king, all of these words are relational. Do you value your relationship with this relational king? The merciful king provides for us the kind of example we should be willing to follow. And we can do this because he is not only a relational king, he's a good king. 
because it says that in verse 9, the Lord is good to all. His tender mercies are over all His works. Yahweh God, the Lord, is good. I want you to reflect for a minute. Take a step back. Just, I want you to reflect for a minute how good God has been to you. You can go as far back as you want. You can think about this past week. You can think about this past year. You could think about this past month. God's financial blessings He's given you. The fact that we are here in a comfortable room. And most of us have very few financial worries to worry about. The eternal life He has promised you. Think about that blessing. Wow. What an amazing, good God to give to us eternal life. And He does not require us to work for it. It is a gift. What a blessing we have. Can you imagine the kind of God who would freely give to us eternal life, the relationships he has blessed you with. Treasure them. Thank the Lord for them. Reflect next, not only on how good God has been to us, I want you to stop for a second and be honest here and reflect our, uh, on our ungrateful hearts. How often have we neglected to praise God for how good he is to us? We just don't think about it. We can grow accustomed to almost anything. My wife and I, on our, on our honeymoon, we, we honeymooned in Jamaica. It was beautiful. And we went to a resort there, and there we were, and this first walked in this, this door. We could not believe our eyes. There were these amazing swimming pools, and the beach was gorgeous, and the sun was bright, and the sand was beautiful, and there was so much stuff to do all the time, and we were enamored with this, and we were just so amazed, and we just couldn't believe our eyes. But you know, after about three days, it was normal. In fact, they tell you, this is a tip someone told me once. When we do mission trips, they said, take all your photos the first two days you're there because after a couple days, you stop seeing new things. And I think that's pretty true. You know, it's like this with a lot of things. We are so used to having a good God, a good king, that we stop thinking about it. We've grown accustomed to the goodness in which we live and the, and the comfort in which we live. We don't even think about Every day, how God's goodness is pouring out upon us, how his tender mercies are over all his works, all the works of God demonstrate how good he is. We see the goodness of God through the way he has blessed us. We worship the compassionate king, the one who is relational, he's merciful, he's good. We also worship the eternal king. If you keep reading with me in verses 10 through 13, this is the amazing thing is that the God we trust isn't going anywhere. It's not like he's retiring next week. Our God is an eternal king. Look at verse 10. All your works shall praise you, O Lord. Your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and shall talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts, the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generation. Worship involves those who are made by God. All your works shall praise you and your saints shall bless you. Everything that is made by God sings praise to the Lord. The trees of the, of the field shall clap their hands. The, the planets and the stars rejoice at God. All the saints, those of us who are holy through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrificial death of Christ, are called holy and we are to praise God. Notice the kingdom of God here reference. We've, we've seen God the king in verse 1. Now we have this theme again in verse 12 and verse 13. The very center of this psalm is where the emphasis on the kingdom once again is established. The glorious majesty of his kingdom and your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures. 
through all generations. There's not a generation that will not have the kingdom of God, the everlasting, eternal kingdom of God. There's no human kingdom that can be eternal. I hate to break it to you, but the American kingdom is not going to be eternal. I hate to break it to you, but there's no other kingdom in the whole world. We've seen, you study history, you see kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Empires rise, empires fall. Leaders rise, leaders fall. Nations rise, and nations fall. But God's kingdom is an eternal, everlasting kingdom. We see that described at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation when God establishes his millennial kingdom. And then one day, the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal reign of God will be forever and ever. We worship an eternal king. And lastly, in verse 14, we worship for the provider king. This provider first provides help. This one who is eternal, who has kingdom and dominion, says the Lord upholds all who fall. And he raises up those who are bowed down. Some of us have had hard weeks, hard years. The past couple of years have been very difficult on many people. I have never seen in my life of ministry here at Harvest, or really, I talk, this is across the country and across the world probably, the, the heaviness that has been present among our Christians in the past couple of years. Many are unable to come and meet because of health concerns. Many are estranged from family over divisions that are political or that are religious or that are whatever. There's heaviness that is there, and God upholds those who fall. God raises up those who are bowed down. He provides help. When you need help, where do you turn? Where you turn when you need help shows where you think the answer is. He also provides our needs in verses 15 and 16. He says, The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. Can you think of anything more essential than food? God feeds the needy. The eyes of all look expectantly to you. You open your hand. And you satisfy the desire of every living thing. He provides our needs like a shepherd king. I was just thinking to myself, I, I, this past week was kind of funny. My wife and I had a serious conversation we had to have. And so we, we shut our door and we locked it. And we said, kids, can't come in right now. We're talking. And we're sitting there talking about this. And all of a sudden I hear this, this little noise. It's, this is at night, so it's like 8, 8 o'clock, 8.15. The kids are supposed to be getting ready for bed. And I hear this little noise, this little... And I look, and under the door is a piece of paper Hallie has stuck under the door and is waving it back and forth in order to get my attention. And I look, and I say, Hallie, is that, is that you? Yes. I said, is this a note for me? Yes. So I go and pick it up, and Hallie, who's five cannot yet write any words, but she can communicate. And in this was a crayon drawing. I, I really, in the next, I ought to take a picture of this and show you the again. It's hilarious. It's a picture of a person sitting and eating something like this. And I laughed and I said, Hallie, are you asking for a snack? Yes. I said, Go ahead, get your snack. Okay, and she runs down the stairs and gets her snack. I'm very thankful that she asked permission before just raiding the kitchen. That's good. That's good. Little steps, right? Maybe steps. 
But, but she knew that she needed to ask for food. And she asked in her way. She didn't have a poem of very profound language. It wasn't typed up perfectly. It was pretty crude. Yet she, in her own way, begged us for food. And my brother, I, I actually took a picture, sent it to my family, and, and thought, thought it was so funny. My brother uh, sent a picture back on the family text from uh, Oliver Twist, the little boy holding up the bowl, saying, please, sir, may I have some more? And I thought, yeah, that's not far from the truth right there, I guess. But isn't this how we should come to the Lord? We should come in our own way, the best we know how, praying to God, saying, Lord, just please give me what I need. And God's not going to judge the way you come to him in a sense that he will not say, well, you didn't say that right. In fact, we come to God through the Spirit and through Christ. We come to him through the blood of Christ, but through the Spirit who can interpret our words for us. He is the shepherd king. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not have any needs. I shall not want. He provides our needs. He provides salvation. Let's move quickly here at the end. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his work. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to those who call on him in truth. There is a requirement here that God is righteous in what he does, and he is righteous and gracious in what he does, but he is near to those who call. Have you called on him? Or are you being self-sustaining, self-sufficient? You must call on the name of the Lord to be saved. You cannot be saved by this righteous God unless you first call on his name. You must request salvation from God. You are not born saved. You are not born redeemed. You must be reborn. You must be born anew. You must be born again. You must come to God in faith and say, Lord, I'm calling on you. Please preserve me. Please save me from my sin and from hell. He says he will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. He will hear their cry, verse 19, and he will save them. God promises to save those who call upon him, and he will preserve all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. There is eternal life. There is salvation from death, from those who in faith receive the gift of salvation through Christ. And there is freedom from sin. There is freedom from the power of sin present from those who live in the fear of God and in obedience from him. Christ did not spare his own son. He delivered him up for us all. He is the provider God. Then if he did, if he gave us the greatest gift, Christ, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. Romans 8, 20, 8, 32, I'm sorry, shows us this dynamic truth that God is willing to give us everything we need. He will provide for us now. As we conclude, look at verse 21 with me. He says, My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all my flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. I put here, the king of all deserves our unending praise. He says, My mouth shall speak, all flesh shall bless forever and ever. There is this progression of my mouth and then it grows to all flesh and this will happen forever. George Herbert, the English poet, wrote the hymn, Let all the world in every corner sing, My God and King. The heavens are not too high, God's praise may thither fly. The earth is not too low, God's praises there may grow. Let all the world in every corner sing, My God and King. The church with psalms must shout. No door can keep them out, but more than all, the heart must bear the longest part. Let all the world in every corner sing, My God 
He's the majestic king, Jesus, the kingly Messiah. He is the compassionate king, Jesus, the one who looks on the lost with compassion. He is the eternal king, Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. And he is the alpha and the omega, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 22, verse 13. He is the provider king. Jesus says that he would provide the gift of salvation, and he would also receive, if we receive that gift, by faith, and he is the king who deserves unending praise. You see, God, the king, is also a description of our Lord Jesus Christ, the same king. And my question for you is, has God's praise ceased from your lips? What has happened in your life that keeps you from praising God? Is it sin? Has sin interrupted your praise? Is it worldliness? Has that interrupted your praise? Or has doubt interrupted your praise of God? One last verse, and we will close. Revelation 19, we see the picture of heaven. He says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and him who sat on it was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, his head like many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. One sec. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. This is his picture of the Son of God, Jesus. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friends, this is who we worship. And this is why we're here. We worship the great and almighty King. And we must bow before him in praise.